thinking this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter and the 25th verse. The 25th verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We thus resume our study in this great epistle to the Ephesians after the break of Whitson. And here we come to what is, in a sense, a fresh subsidiary section in this great epistle. You remember that, in a sense, the apostle divides the whole epistle into two great sections, the first three chapters being pure exposition of doctrine. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he begins his application of that doctrine. But he hasn't gone very far before he's back again with great and fundamental doctrine concerning the nature of the church. And so he goes on with that until the 16th verse in this fourth chapter. Then, having dealt with it, he really does come to this practical section. It begins at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. But there again, we found that that involved him in a very necessary description in detail and reminder once more of the kind of life that was lived by the Gentiles in order that he might say this. He says, you cannot possibly continue living that kind of life if you really have learned Christ and if you really do know the truth as it is in Jesus. Very well, then he says, winding it all up and summing it all up again, I exhort you, he says, therefore, to put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt in the deceitful lusts, and the being renewed in the spirit of your mind, that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now then, having said that, he now proceeds with the word wherefore. And here he is introducing us to the really practical aspect of this whole teaching. The general governing principle is that we put off the old men and that we put on the new men. But the apostle cannot leave it in that general form. He feels it is necessary for him to apply it in detail and to take up particular questions particular aspects of conduct and of behavior. And that is what he begins to do here in verse 25. And we shall find in a sense that he continues to do this right until the very end of the epistle. But as I pointed out months ago in making an analysis of this whole final section, he keeps on interspersing it with doctrine. And that for a reason with which I hope to deal this morning. Very well, then. We, we realize here exactly what the apostle uh, 
is doing. This is his argument. You are no longer what you once were. Indeed, you've become something that is entirely different. Now then, put off in every way everything that is suggestive of what you once were. Put on everything that really does belong to and is true of this new men that you are in Christ Jesus. Very well. He wants them now to see how this is really to be done. As we therefore approach this uh, section, which is a long section, it seemed to me that nothing surely could be more helpful or advantageous as uh, that we should look at the teaching as a whole, first of all, because there are certain principles uh, with respect to it which govern every one of the single detailed applications. And uh, therefore I would invite your consideration this morning of these general principles, these common lessons which seem to me to stand out clearly and prominently in this entire section. Now here are some of these principles. The first is obviously the truth must always be applied. Wherefore, he says, truth is not something to be regarded objectively and to be enjoyed intellectually. Truth is to be applied. I remember once an occasion when a man was preaching and preaching with great eloquence and said a very striking thing. And certain people in the congregation spontaneously broke out to applaud and clapped their hands. And the good preacher, men of God as he was, pulled them up and said, the truth is not to be applauded, it is to be applied. How true that is. We do violence to truth unless we realize that it is to be applied. The purpose of all doctrine, all knowledge, everything, is to lead us to a life that is in conformity to the truth that we believe. I needn't stay with this. Our Lord has put it once and forever in a memorable phrase. If, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. It's a terrible thing to stop at knowledge only. Knowledge is absolutely essential. That's why the apostle has devoted the whole of the first three chapters to it. And indeed most of this fourth chapter. Knowledge is absolutely essential. We can do nothing without it. But to stop at knowledge, theoretical academic knowledge, is, I say, quite as bad, if not worse, as to be ignorant. Very well, that's the first obvious principle. But I pass on immediately to a second one, which is this. That a real and a true understanding of the truth always does lead to application. So that if a man doesn't apply the truth, his real trouble is that he hasn't understood it. There's a defect at some point in his very understanding. For if a man just gets hold of this and sees what it means and what it says and implies, of necessity, he will have to apply it. That's why the Apostle introduces these sections generally with words like therefore and wherefore. The thing is obvious, he says. 
There's no need to argue about it. It should be self-evident. Very well. That leads us to the third, which is this. And it's very obvious in this great section. The Christian faith and the Christian teaching apply to and affect the whole of life and in every detail. You can't read from this 25th verse of this fourth chapter to the end without seeing that. You'll find that he tells us not to lie but to speak the truth, not to steal, not to talk foolishly. He goes into details. Parents and children, husbands and wives, every conceivable thing is represented, every aspect and walk and department of life. The Christian truth and faith apply to the whole of it. There are no compartments in the spiritual world. And there is nothing so fatal as to divide our lives up into compartments. Now, the jibe, uh, the, the, the characteristic jibe of this present century against our Victorian grandfathers is, oh, that they were very religious on Sunday, but they forgot it the rest of the week. Well, there may be some truth in it, and there may be some truth in that as it applies to us also, but it's all wrong. If that were so, it's not surprising that the vast bulk of the people are outside the Christian church today. Christianity covers the whole of life, not Sunday only. We're not only religious on Sunday, we're religious always. Our conduct should be the same everywhere, in the church, in the mart, wherever it is. There are to be no compartments in this Christian life. Or to put it in another form, which I sometimes feel needs to be emphasized, our Christian faith must be manifested and put into practice, not only in our public or our professional conduct, but in every part of our conduct. I'm saying that in order to emphasize this that there is the type of man who is very scrupulous in his public conduct, who doesn't apply the same canons when he comes to his private behavior. There are men who wouldn't dream of telling a lie in business or doing anything dishonest in business. There are men who observe the professional code, the last thing in the world they'd think of is ever to fall short of it. But their standards in their private behavior and conduct in their homes and in the, in the bosoms of their families is something strangely and strikingly different. Now all that I say we are shown here at once is entirely wrong. The Christian teaching, the Christian principle covers and governs the whole of our life in every single detail. Supreme glory, in a sense, of the Christian life is that it gives us this wholeness and delivers us from the dichotomies and the divisions which are ever characteristic of sin, not only as between men and men, but even within the man himself. Now then, there are certain big general principles which stand out at once as we review the whole section. But now I want to call attention in particular to the Apostle's method or his general plan of teaching his ethics and his morality. Because he works on a, on a pattern and he does the same thing each time and this is his pattern. He first of all puts a negative, tells us what we mustn't do. 
He then puts a positive in which he tells us what we should do. And thirdly, he gives us the reason for all this. Here it is all in verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, there's the negative, speak every man truth with his neighbor. There's the positive. Why do you do this? For we are members one of another. I do trust that you're all as fascinated by the method as I am. You can analyze these epistles as you can analyze any of the great uh, sonatas or symphonies of Beethoven. There are these definite steps. These things are not just thrown out anyhow. No, no, there's, there's a definite scheme here. Negative, positive reason. Now, you watch that. Read it for yourselves. He goes on in the next and says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil, and so on. And then, in all of them, you'll find, Stop doing that, he says, then do this. And then that's why I tell you both to stop that and to do this. And that now leads to what I want to put before you chiefly this morning. A very vital principle, it seems to me, arises from this method which the Apostle here implies. And it is this. You and I are told to do these things. I mean by that, the Apostle, as he comes to face these particular problems in Christian living and the Christian life. Here were people, for instance, who'd been brought up in heathendom and uh, had been living the life that was so characteristic of that uh, type of life at that time. It was a life of lying and fraud and stealing and deceit and all the rest of it. Well, they've become Christians, but it doesn't mean that automatically all is well with them. No, no. They're in the fight of faith now. And uh, they're troubled by these old tendencies now, what does the apostle, the apostle tell them to do? Well, you notice that his advice and his exhortation are not uh, simply that they should pray to God to take these things out of their lives over this question of lying. He doesn't say, pray to God to deliver you from the tendency to lying. What he says, actually, is stop lying. See to it that you always speak the truth. And for this reason... Now, I think we'll agree that this is a very important principle. There is a type, the type of teaching which would always tell us that whatever the problem or the difficulty, there's only one thing to do, and that is to take it to the Lord in prayer, ask him to deliver you from it, to take it out of you, and you just stand by and watch the victory. No, no, says the apostle. Wherefore, put away lying. Speak truth. Every man unto his neighbor. This is something that you and I have got to do. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Let him that stole not pray that he may be delivered from the tendency to steal, but let him steal no more. But let him rather labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. 
You and I are called upon to do these things and to apply the teaching that we claim to believe in actual practice. And then, he also tells us quite plainly and clearly that we must always know why we are behaving thus and be able to give a reason for our conduct. In other words, we don't do these things mechanically. We don't have a system imposed upon us. That's not Christianity. That's the cults. Christianity always gives us a reason, and therefore we can give the reason ourselves. We don't act mechanically. We don't do it, as I said before, by numbers. We don't take all this upon us in that sense. No, we, we know each time why we've stopped doing something, why we've started doing something else, and we can tell other people why. We don't, uh, when they come to us and say, but who cares, why? Uh, why have you stopped doing these things you used to do with us? And why are you behaving? We don't just stand and say, well, uh, we don't know. We've now joined a company which, in which these things are not done and in which the other things are done and no more. No, no. We must be ready not only always to give a reason for the hope that is in us, we must be able to give a reason for our conduct and our mode of behavior. Very well then, this is the thing. The reason, always in the case of the Christian, is a special one. And this seems to me to be the thing that we must emphasize very especially this morning. The Christian... Acts in this way, he knows why he's doing it. Yes, and what he knows is something which is unique and special. The apostle really implies all that by using the word wherefore. You've got to do all this, he says, because, in the light of the things we've already been considering, wherefore. In other words, uh, the reason is uh, the reason that he has already been giving them. But he doesn't leave it merely at wherefore. He every time provides us with the particular reason. Here it is again in our verse, wherefore he says, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Why? Well, because, because we are members one of another. Now, when we come to deal with that, we shall see that that is a peculiarly Christian thing. We are members one of another. That's why we stop lying. That's why we begin to speak the truth. It is a special and it is a unique reason. Why is this point about the uniqueness or the special character of the reason so important? Well, let me put it like this. It is of vital importance because there are other forms of moral and ethical teaching and of behavior. Christianity has not a monopoly of ethical and moral teaching. There are pagan moralities. There are so-called humanistic moralities and ethical and cultural systems. And they're very evident in this modern world in which we find ourselves so that it seems to me nothing is more important for us than this. To be able to draw a clear distinction between Christian morality, ethics, and culture and every other form of ethics, morality, and culture. 
We must do that, I say. Otherwise, we shall be unable to state the Christian truth plainly and clearly. Now, let me put this into its historical setting to make it much more plain and clear. Last century in particular, a type of teaching came in, sponsored and started very largely by the famous Thomas Arnold, the famous headmaster of rugby. He and others began to teach and to propagate a a new teaching, which they still called Christianity, but which rarely was nothing but a moral and an ethical teaching. It had practically nothing to say about the supernatural and about the miraculous. It said very little about the spiritual element. There was no redemption in it whatsoever, not a word about regeneration. Its whole idea was that Christianity was a way of life and of living, and that you became a Christian as you read the teaching of our Lord especially and applied it to your daily life. That was the teaching. It was almost exclusively, I say, a matter of conduct and behavior, ethical and moral practice. And it became tremendously popular. I don't want to use terms, but it's sometimes been called public school religion. There are those who would even tend to call it today BBC religion. Well, you can choose yourselves about that. But uh, that is the kind of teaching to which I am referring, and many still believe that that is Christianity, and that we make ourselves Christian by not doing certain things and by doing other things, by conforming to a moral ethical pattern or a certain type of culture. Now, the principle that I'm emphasizing can be put very simply and plainly like this. That is just to deny completely and entirely what the Apostle is teaching here. There is nothing, finally, that is more opposed to the Christian message than just that type of teaching. And therefore it did seem to me to be rather important that before we came to consider in details these matters like lying and being angry and subject to wrath, and uh, stealing and using corrupt communications and being guilty of bitterness and wrath and anger and all these things, it did seem to me to be tremendously important that we should be clear in our minds at the very beginning that all this has nothing to do with pagan and humanistic moral and ethical teaching and ideas with respect to life. And therefore, I want to put to you some of the differences between these two things. I ask again, why am I doing so? Why don't I go on at once to this question of lying? Well, I'll tell you. Why is this so vital for these reasons? If we are not clear about this, we shall take away the uniqueness of the Christian message. Our claim is that Christianity is absolutely unique, that there's nothing like it and never has been and never will be. But if we adopt this other teaching, we've entirely taken away the uniqueness of Christianity. 
we make of it then just a collection of moral and ethical principles exactly as you have in the writing of many of the Greek pagan philosophers who lived and taught and died before the Lord Jesus Christ was ever born or came into this world. The uniqueness of Christianity has gone. It's just one of a number of great moral systems. But still more important and still more serious, it takes away the uniqueness of our Lord himself. It makes of him just one of a number of other great teachers with respect to life. And you will notice as you read the writings of the people who belong to that other school, and there are many of them still, and they write even in religious journals and in religious books, they've got a, a habit. They give their whole case away by putting certain lists. They say, now the great ethical moral teachers have always said this. We mean, they say, such people as Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jesus and Paul and uh, Mohammed and Buddha, and so on and so forth. He, he's put into a category. He's just one person amongst a number of great teachers. He no longer stands alone and in a category apart. He's just a great teacher, one of the great teachers, one of the great religious geniuses uh, that the world has uh, thrown up. He just belongs uh, to a series. And so he is deprived of his uniqueness and his essential glory. But if you want a very practical reason for emphasizing this, it is this. Some of the most difficult people to preach to and to get hold of at the present time are the cultured pagans. And they are difficult for this reason, that they feel that they have no need of Christianity. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't commit adultery. They don't use these corrupt communications. And therefore, if you represent Christianity as just a moral ethical system that tells us not to do certain things and to do others, they say, very well, it's all right. I'm already doing that sort of thing. That's what I already believe. My life has lived to practice that kind of thing. And I really don't see any need to come to your churches on Sunday. I can do that quite as well out in the country. Indeed, I'm helped by the glory and the beauty of nature and so on and so forth. Why the Christian church? Why, why do you separate yourselves off? Why do you say that you've got something separate and different? So you see that this is a matter that involves the very heart and core of the Christian position. And so I want to suggest to you some of the big and essential differences between Christianity and any and every form of pagan culture or a collection of pagan virtues. Well, here they are. The first big difference is to be found in the reasons that are given for living the type of life. Now then, let's look at these others first of all. What are the reasons that they give? Well, you will always find that they isolate their conduct and their behavior as something in and of itself. They isolate certain virtues. They put up a list or a series of abstract virtues. And now they say, now those are the things that you are to put into practice in your life. 
That's their essential approach. It is theoretical, it is abstract. And they just pick out virtues in and of themselves and say, now then, apply them. And so they make their appeal to us in terms of the country to which we belong, or the school to which we belong, or the family to which we belong, or the class to which we belong. They say, gentlemen never do that, gentlemen always do this. It's the dumb thing, they say. Now, that's always their argument. That's always their reason. You see, it's always something impersonal. It's an abstract virtue which they have isolated and they've put up and then they ask us to apply these things. But you notice the Christian reason is always essentially different. Why does the Christian not do those things and do the others? Oh, his reason is always in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, he says, because Christ has come into the world and has died for me and has risen again and has given me a new life, therefore, you noticed it in that beautiful phrase in the 27th verse of the first chapter of the epistle to the Philippians, only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ. Not your country, not the dumb thing. No, no, as becometh the gospel of Christ. Our reason is always personal. It always refers back to the Lord, who he is, what he's done and how he's done it and why he's done it. The reasons are diametrically opposed and are different. But come to a second point. In these pagan systems, even, I call them pagan, even they, though they may use Christian terminology, you will find that they always presume natural ability. Obviously, because they come to us and tell us to pull ourselves together and to conform to the pattern. They're presuming that we've got the ability and the power to do so. And because of that, you will find that it generally is a type of teaching that only appeals to certain type of people. In the ancient times, it only appealed to the cultured, the able, the educated. So that when our Lord came, you see, and John the Baptist sent his two emissaries to him asking the question, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? The reply he sent back was this. Go and tell John again the things that he have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are made to hear, the deaf are raised, and... Now I'm coming to a terrible anticlimax. Am I? The gospel is preached to the poor. That's his climax, you notice. After talking about raising the dead, the gospel is preached to the poor. Why does he say that? Well, because your pagan systems, your pagan ethics and moralities had nothing to say to the poor. And they still haven't. You've got to be a cultured man before you can apply pagan culture and humanistic morals and ethics. It presumes it in you. And if you haven't got it, it's got nothing to say with, to you. That is why the masses of the people have never been touched by such a teaching and are not being touched by it today. 
And in other words, you see, that kind of teaching has nothing to offer to failures. If a man doesn't do it, they just denounce him and have to leave him. They can't understand him. They say he's unintelligent, he's a fool. And there they leave him, nothing to give him. Christianity, on the other hand, you see, presumes one thing only. And that is that we've been given new life. That we've been regenerated. Wherefore, says Paul, you mustn't walk any longer as the other Gentiles walk and as you once walked. Why not? You've been born again. You've got the new man in you. You've got an ability given by God. Nothing of that in the other. It's all natural. It's all human. This is divine. This is God. This is miraculous. This is supernatural. It presumes the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. What a difference. How could they ever have been confused? But come to a third difference. Pagan teaching these other moralities and ethics always, for the reasons I've been giving, minister to self-satisfaction and to pride. Obviously, a man preens himself on the fact that he's not a liar. His word is his bond. I'm a man of my word. My word is my bond. I've got a code. And he's very pleased with himself. The Apostle Paul was very pleased with himself before he became a Christian. Anybody who has any kind of morals and ethics apart from this is always pleased. He's doing well. Concerning the righteousness which is of the Lord, blameless, exceeding all my fellow countrymen in my efforts and endeavors. Certainly, I'm doing very well. I don't need your Christian help. I'm already living this cultured, ethical, moral life. Self-satisfaction and pride. Christianity always keeps us humble. Always makes us conscious of what we are not and what we are failing to do. And as we look at him, we feel we are but worms. And when we are addressed in these words, let this mind be in you also that was in Christ Jesus, we say, where are we? We are down in the dust. It's the exact opposite, you see, all along the line. Or, to let me put it as a fourth principle, these other systems really leave the old men and the old nature quite untouched. What they do is just to whitewash the surface a little bit and to conceal the foulness that is within. If you just scratch that surface, you'll soon discover what's still there. You take these people who are so moral and ethical and you offend them or cross them and you'll find that their morality is only skin deep. It leaves the old man exactly where he was and what he was, but it puts a veneer on the surface. It whitewashes him. It gives an appearance, but it does no more. Whereas Christianity gives a new man. There's a new nature. There's a new creation. There's a new heart, a new outlook. Oh, to put it again in a principle which I've been using frequently recently in this series, it's all the difference about something being done on the outside and something being done within. And that is the essential difference at this point. All these other systems, you see, simply spend their time in pouring chemicals into the polluted stream. 
Christianity goes back to the source of the stream and makes that pure. These things are on the surface. Christianity goes down to the roots and down to the very depths. It produces a new creation. A new man comes into being. Or to follow that on in the fifth place, I can put it like this. These other systems simply hinder and put a break upon great outbreaks of vice and the coarse manifestations of vice. They don't really deal with vice itself. Ah, a man who follows these systems, he'll never be guilty of anything gross or big or obvious. No, no, they don't believe in that. You must be respectable, you see. But it leaves the vice exactly where it was. There's nothing coarse. There's nothing foul or ugly. Oh, no, you wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. But the thing in principle and in essence is still there in his life. That's what makes these things so terribly dangerous. Christianity, on the other hand, deals with the whole problem. Oh, you see it perfectly illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount. Those Pharisees taught, you see, as long as you didn't actually commit adultery, that all was well and that you were perfect as regards that commandment. No, no, says Christ. If it's in your mind and heart and thought and imagination, and if you played with it, you're guilty of it. It gets right down to the roots and to the depths. It's not only interested in coarse manifestations, it is interested in any kind of manifestation. Again, I would put it in this form, that all these systems are only concerned, as I said just now, with public behavior. And the private behavior is often so different. May I use a modern illustration to say what I mean? Look at the lists of certain gentlemen who are speaking so busily at the present time in the name of morality against the use of these hydrogen bombs and so on. They have a sense of moral indignation. In the name of humanity, they say, this is an impossible thing. We must denounce it. We must stop it. Their moral conscience... Their sense of righteousness is roused. But you go into their life history and story. Is there the same keen edge to their moral conscience in the question of their fidelity to their first wives? I need say no more. This public morality that doesn't apply itself in the most tender and noble relationships of life is a fraud. I am not interested in the moral indignation of men who haven't the same moral indignation in all the realms and departments of life. It's an appearance. It isn't genuine. But let me go on to my seventh contrast, which is this. These other systems always really deal with nothing but repression. They know nothing about expression. They're negative. They lack freedom. But Christianity, you notice, has both. 
You stop doing one thing, you do the other. It isn't merely negative. You don't only stop lying. No, no. But that other is always negative and purely repressive. It knows nothing about the glorious liberty of the children of God. Let me put that in another principle like this. The pagan and these other cultures are always manufactured. They always lack life and they always lack spontaneity. They're a kind of standardized product and the result is they always produce the same type. They're all the same, they all look the same and they all do the same things in the same way. You see, these systems really violate personality because they're pressing all our personalities into a mold. No, Christianity never does that. In Christianity there is always variety in the unity. We who are Christians do the same things, but we're not all the same. Thank God there's variation of variety here, a diversity in unity. We don't conform to a standard pattern. If you do find Christians who do always the same thing in the same way, suspect them. There's something wrong in their teaching. No, no, there's a spontaneity in this. As there were those differences in the apostles, so there are the differences in all Christians. No two preachers who are Christians should preach in exactly the same way. One may be quiet, the other may be vehement. Let him be so. God's made him such. But in these other systems, they clamp down upon your very personality. And they produce a standard type like peas in a row or like a series of postage stamps. That's the false and it's the antithesis of the true which is the Christian. Or let me put it in a final principle, which is this. Those other systems are always cold. It's the coldness of artificiality. It's all the difference between a rose blooming on a branch in your garden and an artificial rose. They look very much alike at first, don't they? But oh, that artificial thing, it's cold, it's dead, it's hard. There's no warmth about it. There's nothing that really attracts when you get near it. And that is true of all these moral ethical systems. I don't know whether you found that, I always find it. You can't really get near these people. These people are merely moral and ethical. There's a coldness about them. They're self-contained. They're very perfect. But you don't get sympathy out of them. There's no warmth. They don't encourage you, they don't sympathize with you. There's only one word that really describes them. They're snobs. And a snob is no use to anybody. He's all right in his kind of perfection, but he's of no value to anybody else. He's hard, he's cold, he's lifeless. There's no sympathy, there's no encouragement to anybody. But when you come to the Christian, what a contrast. He's warm, he's human. He's sympathetic, he's approachable, he's encouraging, he isn't ever standing on his dignity. He can forget himself, he can enthuse, he's governed by a principle of love. And it's there at the center of his life and it radiates out of him. He's not always watching and observing himself on the outside. There's this spontaneity, this principle, this blessed principle of life. He is what he is by the grace of God. And because the grace of God has been able to do this with him, it, he makes you feel that it can do it with you also. I want to end by telling you a story of the conversion of a man aged 77, some 20 odd years ago.
He was a terrible character, a drunkard, a wife-beater, a gambler, everything a man shouldn't be. But that man became a Christian. How did he become a Christian? In this way. Drinking his mug of beer one afternoon, he happened to hear two other men talking about the gospel. And as he listened, he heard one saying to the other, you know, he said, I felt that there was hope for me there. And something hit this old man. He said, if there's hope for him, there's hope for me. But you know, when you find these self-contained people, they never make you feel there's any hope at all. You say, it's very wonderful, but who am I? I can't do it. I'm made differently. And they damn you and they leave you out in the cold. Not so the gospel of Christ. There's this warmth, this life, this radiance, this dynamic quality. You look at a man and you say, he is what he is by the grace of God. And if he did it to him, it can do it to me. Oh, I'm reminded of another incident, and with this I I close. I once stayed some 30 years ago with a doctor who was then an old man, and he told me his life story after the evening service as I spent the night with him. He said, you know, I've been in trouble about my life right through my long life. He said, it started even when I was at home. And this was the position in his home. He said, my father was a member of a church, an Anglican church. My mother, he said, was a member of a Unitarian church. And he said, this was my problem. My father, he said, while he was a very nice and good man, he said he simply could not go to the local market every Friday and come home sober. My mother, he said, as far as I was aware, never did anything wrong at all. Highly moral, as Unitarians generally are. But you know, he said, I couldn't get away from it. There was something about my father, even with his big failing, that helped me and appealed to me more than this perfect correctness of my mother. I could go to my father... When I'd done wrong, but I always felt I couldn't go to my mother. There was this coldness. He then said he went to Edinburgh as a medical student, and there his problem was perpetuated. He said, I used to go on Sunday mornings to listen to the great Unitarian preacher, Dr. James Martineau, with his great ethical discourses, and I admired the language and the diction and the division of the matter and the thought and the logic. Then he said, I used to go on Sunday nights to the Salvation Army where there was no form and no eloquence and many things that really were offensive to me as a man of culture. And yet, you know, he said, my heart was warmed there. I used to feel there was something there that would help me in my personal failures and my personal problems. In the morning I sat and I admired in the coldness of intellectual detachment. And I wasn't helped with my personal moral problems and my heart wasn't warmed. But in the other, he was. Well, there it is for you, in a picture. And you and I, my friends, as we stop lying and begin to speak the truth, and as we stop using corrupt communications, and as we stop stealing and all this, we must do it in such a way that the poor drunkard, the poor hopeless man who's lost his very willpower, meeting us and coming into contact with us, shall feel that there's a hope for him. We must always do these things in such a way as to make people look to Christ. 
and to know that we are what we are solely by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore ever keep clearly in our minds the distinction between the Christian reason for behaving in this way and every other reason. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.